your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Scott Winship. Scott is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of a new research paper, Inequality Does Not Reduce Prosperity, a compilation of the evidence across countries. Scott, welcome back to the Debt Dialogues. Oh, thanks, Dan. It was a pleasure to be back. So um, one of the striking things about the inequality debate in America is how uninterested, or at least what a low priority most Americans put on it. And so one of the kind of attempts to get around that by people who you might call the inequality alarmists is to say, well, inequality is tied to things that you really do care about, and in particular, economic growth. And so what are the claims by the people who think inequality is a problem regarding its effect on economic growth? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are kind of two different uh, uh, arguments that are made that are are pretty closely related. One is just about whether inequality uh, hurts economic growth in general, so GDP, uh, GDP per capita, um, just how big the size of the economic pie is. And, uh, and there you have a lot of folks who have seized on uh, this or that study um, in the last couple of years. I think the International Monetary Fund has actually been uh, the go-to source for people who want to argue that, that inequality hurts uh, economic growth. Um, but the literature, I think, goes in a different direction than what the IMF finds. IMF essentially takes – they have two different reports. Um, in one of them, they pool uh, very poor developing countries with rich developed countries, and they find uh, that more inequality uh, corresponds with slower economic growth and that redistribution is is more or less unrelated to, uh, to economic growth. And so they argue that – uh, this is evidence in favor of redistribution and lower inequality. In the other study, they don't even include uh, developed countries. It's sort of a it's a group of, uh, of very poor uh, developing countries, and again, find that inequality lowers growth. So, uh, what I've tried to do in, in in my report is distinguish between rich and poor countries. Um, the other thing that you see less of, just because I think uh, the data is not as readily available, is people who actually say, well, you know, in countries that have higher inequality. Uh, that necessarily comes uh, from the pockets of the middle class and the poor, and so more inequality means uh, worse off uh, people below the top. And, and so that's that's kind of the argument that I that I really focus on in, in my report is whether the living standards below the top are hurt when inequality is higher. Now, so the when you look at the claims, then it's more correlation do they have a causal story of how it's supposed to be that inequality is undermining economic growth mm. yeah i mean i i think the thing about uh theory so a lot of people uh end up telling me when i argue you know that evidence for something is is pretty murky or or even goes the other direction than, than what people might think uh, they, they then say, well, there are all these theoretical reasons to think that inequality is bad in this or that way. Uh, and, and I think, you know, it, it sort of gets the scientific method backwards a little bit. I mean, you start with theories and then you test them. And if, uh, 
if there's no correlation, then that's kind of bad news for the theory. Um, but, but so there are a number of theories ranging from, uh, you know, it affects productivity because people get discouraged when, uh, when their own incomes are not rising and people at the top are pulling away. There are arguments that, uh, that people at the top consume um, less of their incomes um, and therefore that that slows growth in the economy. Uh, of course, that argument's made without uh, acknowledging that uh, GDP includes not only consumption but investment. And so if the top is not consuming, they are uh, investing. Um, and that particularly in the long run, that, uh, that might grow the economic pie. Uh, so there are a number of these of these sort of theoretical arguments that are that are trotted out and rarely tested directly. So I I tend to put not a lot of stock in in the theoretical reasons that that people offer. So let's focus then on the the first kind of claim you mentioned. Now you point out that it really is important to separate out uh, developed and developing countries. Um, I've always thought that if you make a claim, which they'll often do, and I believe you quote some of these in your report, which is in effect, America is you know in the same class uh, as I forget the examples, but Iran or something, uh, mm. in terms of inequality, like that by itself should make you think. Well, there's something wrong with taking inequality then as a main uh, uh, factor in economic growth, because clearly we are not the same as these countries that have basically no economic development. Hmm. That's right. I mean, the, the historical context is completely different. Um, and, you know, I, I think more than anything, it, it points out how limited the information is conveyed by uh, an inequality statistic. Um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've got quotes from uh, a couple of people, um, Georgia Levinson, Keohane is uh, at the Roosevelt Institute, a uh, a liberal think tank, and, and she says, uh, quote, we are living, some argue, in a North American banana republic. Our income inequality is worse than that of Guyana, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. When it comes to shared prosperity, we keep company with Iran and Yemen. And, you know, so I actually went and figured out how uh, middle-class living standards in the United States compare to these countries. And it's, you know, it's up to uh, a factor of 40 uh, uh uh, uh, better than these than 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 these poorer countries. So, you know, if all you have, if all you know about a country is its uh, is its Gini coefficient or the share of income going to the top one percent, uh, that just doesn't tell you anything about um, how well the poor middle class lives, or whether you would improve their situations by reducing inequality. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think to to sort of pool uh, developing and, and rich countries together. Uh, and 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 look at the correlation between inequality and in living standards or inequality and in growth um, without controlling for anything else uh, and to and to use that as as your primary case that inequality is bad, which is really what the IMF uh, has done now. Um, you know, is, it, it wouldn't pass the laugh test in in academia. So, can you talk a little bit then about kind of uh, we'll put a link to the entire report because there's a lot of you go through a lot of steps and a lot of different ways of looking at the data, but just mm. at a high level, w- how did you approach the question and what were your findings overall? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, I started off, I had a whole draft of this report actually written, uh, fairly early in the summer. Um, it only came out, uh, the paper just came out last month, I think. 
um, where I, I just looked, my, my measure of inequality was uh, the one that's used the most often, which is uh, called the Gini coefficient. Um, it essentially uh, looks across the whole distribution of income from, from the poorest to the, to the richest. Because our, our data uh, generally are not great, um, it, surveys don't capture the people at the very top. And so in the paper, I, I ended up referring to the Gini coefficient as, as looking at inequality below the top 1%. I think that's probably what it's, what it's best considered. Um, and so I had this whole draft written, and I sort of realized, well, you know, what everyone's talking about is, is income concentration. It's not inequality below the, the top 1%. It's the share of income going to the top. And so then I, I added uh, a couple of sections where I did everything again to the extent that I could, um, looking at looking at uh, this other measure of inequality. And so in both cases, I looked across uh, countries um, and compared inequality levels to the living standards of both the poor and the middle class. Um, so their their incomes adjusted uh, to be comparable across countries as best that, that we can. Uh, in terms of their purchasing power, and just sort of looked at the at the correlations, uh, which is kind of the first step that that you want to do, and, and often the last step uh, for for a lot of analyses. Uh, and I found, you know, initially uh, this the same negative correlation uh, that that IMF and others have found. Uh, but but when you when you sort of look at the the charts, uh, if if anyone downloads the report, you can see that uh, that the relationship is. It's not a simple kind of one-to-one -one or linear relationship at all, and and so there's other things going on. Uh, and and my thought was, you know, you have all of these different cultural and historical contexts between uh, the developed world and, and the developing world. What happens if you if you split countries up uh, and look separately at, uh, at the relationship between inequality and living standards within these groups? And when you do that, uh, in most of my analyses, uh, the relationship flips. So instead of instead of higher inequality hurting living standards, um, it actually it, it, countries that have more inequality actually have better off uh, poor and middle class populations. Um, and I think that's uh, I, I think that's a really important uh, control to add, um, just because you know correlation is not is not causation is. I think every statistics 101 student learns. Um, and I, I tried not to argue strongly that I've found great evidence that, uh, that, that the way to help the middle class and poor is actually you know, to jack up inequality as much as we can. Uh, but I think the absence of this correlation going the other way is pretty strong evidence that, uh, that there's not much to the claim that, that inequality is harmful. Now, what happens then when you look at it trying to take into account the upper end of the distribution. So, for instance, I mean, Piketty is very critical of using uh, the Gini coefficient precisely because it does leave out, you know, the top 1% of earners, the people who aren't likely to show up in the household surveys. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you, as you said, you kind of take a second pass and look at it from that perspective. What do you find? Yeah, so, uh, so the, the main challenge with looking at income concentration is just that there are far fewer countries that we have good estimates uh, of that. Um, and there are only, you know, two or three developing countries where we have, where we have estimates at all. So I, I made a decision that the two or three countries where we can look at that, you know, 
who knows whether they're representative of, uh, of the full group. And so I just decided, all right, we're going to drop those. And you're left with, uh, uh, with basically um, continental Western European countries and countries in what I call the Anglosphere uh, that, uh, that sort of uh, the big countries that used to be in the British Commonwealth. Some of them still are in the British Commonwealth. Um, but the big English-speaking countries. And uh, when you do that, uh, you first of all, if you look at how the share of income going to the top 1% is related to middle-class living standards, you again find uh, this pretty clear relationship where, uh, where countries that have higher inequality actually have better off middle classes. Um, when I looked at the living standards of the poor, uh, I actually found uh, the correlation that, uh, that the IMF finds where countries with, with more inequality have uh, lower living standards at the bottom. Um, again, I think you know, just doing this basic correlation isn't really strong evidence of causality one way or the other. Uh, and, then, and so then what I do in the paper is to, is to use some numbers from a sociologist, Lane Kenworthy, uh, who, whose work I'd recommend to everybody. Uh, Lane is, is a left of center uh, sociologist. His last book was called Social Democratic America and kind of laid out you know, his vision of what he would like uh, the U.S. to look like, which would be very different, I think, from most of your listeners. Uh, but he's a, he's a straight shooter uh, with the numbers, and he posts uh, most, of, most of what he does so that other people can, can take a look as well. Um, and Lane's numbers, uh, which look at the change in inequality within a country and the change in living standards within a country, and so thereby controls for, uh, for a lot of differences between countries that we just can't see, um, when he does that, he finds that countries that experience more growth and in inequality actually see uh, stronger improvement in living standards, both for the poor and for the middle class. Uh, and so, you know, I think, again, I'd, I'd be a little reticent to argue that, that that means we ought to be shooting for the highest inequality levels that we can imagine. Uh, but, it, but it certainly, I think, is strong, strong evidence against the idea that we've got to reduce inequality to make people better off. Now, you've been talking about living standards and can you explain what that concept means because it actually has a technical meaning that would be distinct from measuring what is often called market income yeah yeah that's right right so so this and i've actually gotten in uh some pretty fruitful back and forth on twitter actually uh since the report came out what I did was, in all of my measures of inequality, I wanted to use market income, uh, which by that I mean incomes before anybody gets um, transfers from the government, whether that's Social Security or whether that's uh, kind of welfare for low-income populations, um, and before taxes are taken out at all. So this is kind of inequal- the inequality that uh, a country's economic system produces before it makes any decisions about uh, redistributing pie pieces. Um, I think that's the right way to think about whether inequality is harmful or not, because inequality in uh, post-tax and transfer income really reflects a lot of cultural uh, differences between countries in terms of how much they want to redistribute. Um, and a lot of the arguments from the left about why inequality is bad really are about uh, pre-tax and transfer inequality. It sort of says, well, if you have if you have strong growth but it's not broadly shared, that's a problem, uh, you know, even, even if we do significant redistribution. Uh, so that was my inequality measure. Um, in contrast for my living standards measure, uh, which, is, which is just 
income uh, at the middle and income towards the bottom. Uh, I used post-tax and transfer incomes uh, because ultimately you know, what we care about is, is what people can consume at the end of the day and what they consume at the end of the day uh, does depend on how much redistribution there is. Um, and so, so in the paper, uh, that's what I do. I look at, I look at disposable uh, post-tax and transfer incomes as my measure of living standards. Now, I've actually been persuaded uh, since the paper came out that probably the ideal measure to use uh, might actually be uh, pre-tax and transfer uh, for, to measure living standards as well. Um, unfortunately, you can't really find that measure uh, for very many countries at all. Uh, most, of the, most of the data sources that have really tried to make these income measures comparable across countries do look at uh, disposable income. And, but, but my response on Twitter has kind of been, even if I had used market incomes uh, as the living standards measure, uh, I would probably get the same results because in rich countries, uh, the, the countries that have um, more inequality and, and higher disposable income living standards tend not to redistribute that much. Uh, and so I think, I think even if I had uh, market income in there, uh, you would basically get the same results. I wonder if you can, if we can take a second to talk about whether this uh, has any implications for the claims made by Piketty about where we're headed in the future to an ever rising inequality with disaster to follow. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think what's fascinating about uh, Piketty's argument. Um, is that it is sort of wholly unconcerned with, with living standards. Um, and in his view, rising inequality, if, if, if we do have a future of, of inequality just growing and growing, necessarily that means that the poor and the middle class uh, are going to be uh, impoverished over time. Um, he actually has these sort of, uh, in my view, ridiculous uh, kind of references to, for instance, the Haymarket Square riots of the 19th century in Chicago, uh, that were related to the labor, uh, sort of budding labor movement, um, when, you know, living standards for the middle class were, I don't know, something like a factor of 10 lower than, uh, than they are today. Um, he wonders, you know, whether there's going to be social instability in the future, and in fact, that seems to be the thing he's most worried about uh, in, in terms of why we ought to care about inequality. Um, and I just think, you know, Without, without realizing just how affluent we are as a society. And I'm someone who, you know, who wants to do more for the poor, but the truth is you know, even, even at the bottom, uh, poor Americans are much, much better off than they were uh, a generation or two ago. Um, you just can't infer anything about, about how inequality is going gonna, is gonna to be destabilizing. Um, Piketty's theory, if you actually dig into the technical details of it, uh, implies that as inequality grows, it will only grow... Uh, in the way that he predicts, if uh, if productivity is, is increasing and, and therefore if uh, people below the top actually are getting richer in, in real terms. So uh, if, if we were to follow his policy uh, suggestions and, and prevent this increase in inequality, his model implies it would actually come at the expense of, of living standards below the top. And uh, I'm not sure if he, if he didn't realize that or if he actually prefers... Uh, lower living standards with with less inequality. I, I think there are probably few people that would that would pick that uh, for our for our economic future. 
Yeah, I mean, definitely the instability argument is pretty bizarre. When you, I mean, you're not going to have people making eighty thousand dollars a year rioting because <laughs> there's other people whose you know sushi is better. Mm. It, it's, right. Um, yeah. Exactly, and, and, and it's an instance where you know in, in Venezuela, you know, it may, may be that that high inequality levels, uh, you know, are are there because of political graft or uh, or what have you, or or lack of opportunity and uh, absent absence of uh, supports at the bottom or whatever, and that and that it could be destabilizing uh, in a in a very poor country, but. To think that it's that it's always and everywhere uh, going to be destabilizing, destabilizing in that way is is really to fetishize uh, inequality. I think. Yeah, I mean, if you know anything about human nature, it's that instability is really a function of injustice, and in those countries, it really is an injustice that there's these people who are have a lot of money. But the problem is not that they have a lot of money; it's that they're getting rich off the mm. backs of people through all sorts of you know, political corruption and control. And so, for instance, where do we see riots in, you know, in modern times in America? It's not over economic issues. It's over injustices, like Mm -hmm. perceived racial injustices and so on. And I think, and I think the, what people like Piketty and other inequality alarmists are doing is they're trying to get us to see the fact that some people are really, really rich as an injustice. And there just doesn't seem to be the evidence for it. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's absolutely right. It, it's striking. Uh, this is true both uh, for Piketty. I have a, a new piece up this morning, actually responding to uh, an op-ed that Stephen Ratner uh, had in the New York Times yesterday, uh, and I think it was it was true of him as well. People uh, on the left present inequality as being an obvious problem, and and mostly skip the step of actually uh, trying to convince people that that that's the case. Piketty ultimately falls back on these folk theories about how uh, how inequality corrupts democracy um, by letting uh, wealthier people uh, buy off uh, legislators um, and, and having outside influence on, on policy. And, you know, these, these are all empirical questions um, for sure, but, but, uh, but there's not been a lot of credible work done on any of this. Uh, the, the, the political science that's gotten the most attention on, on the question of inequality and political inequality is by uh, uh, Darren Asamoglu, who also uh, kind of studies developing countries and, uh, and finds that inequality tends to co-occur with uh, what he calls extractive reg- regimes that, uh, as you say, sort of unjustly uh, are, are, are taking money that, uh, that ought to go to, to workers and families and other people in, in politically uh, uh, suspect ways. Um, but then he sort of transfers this argument to, uh, to the developed world. And, he, and, for instance, he's spoken at the Center for American Progress uh, and, and kind of made, made that sort of argument. It just doesn't it's just not obvious at all how, how, how that translates to the rich world. Um, so I get, I, one issue that is related to all this, and we talked a lot about this last time, so we don't need to go into it in great detail, but that there, whatever the relationship between inequality and economic growth, the if we compare internationally inequality and mobility, Supposedly, there's much higher mobility in countries with lower inequality, 
And mm. I wonder if you could just kind of summarize your view on that and what you think the implications are. Right. So this, uh, so some of your listeners may remember the administration in early 2012 uh, election year um, trotted out this graph called the Great Gatsby Curve, uh, which showed just as you said that countries with more inequality have less mobility. Um, again, it was kind of a correlation, um, really simplistic argument. At the time, myself and a couple of other people argued that this was uh, a really weak uh, story that, that the administration was telling. They were actually using it to project that as inequality grows in the United States, mobility will inevitably fall because of because of this great Gatsby curve. Um, now, since then, what's interesting, the economist that produced the Great Gatsby Curve uh, is a Canadian uh, labor economist named Miles Korak. Um, last month, uh, Korak was one of three authors on a paper that very carefully compared uh, mobility across the United States, Sweden, and Canada. Um, and this time, uh, contrary to, to the, the mobility measure in the Great Gatsby Curve, they used a mobility measure that didn't mechanically show worse mobility when inequality uh, is on the rise, uh, which was one of the criticisms I had of, of the Great Gatsby curve originally. Uh, so now in this well, new paper... Can you explain that uh, sure. last point? Yep, right. So, so typically the measure of mobility that, that gets used the most often is called the intergenerational elasticity. And... Uh, essentially, what it tells you is uh, for a given percentage difference in parental incomes, uh, what is the predicted percentage difference in uh, the incomes of, of adult children? Um, and so usually that's, you know, in the United States, that's somewhere between 0.35 and 0.6, which is a ridiculously uh, wide range. Um, and that's on the higher end. In other countries, it's as low as, as, as Denmark, you know, is kind of 0.15 to 0.2. Um, but the problem with, with this measure is that uh, it's not a pure measure of, of rank mobility in terms of you know, if you start at the bottom, are you likely to stay at the bottom? It's affected by how much incomes grow over time, uh, and it's affected by how much inequality grows between the parent generation and between the child generation. So in some ways, the Great Gatsby curve, by finding uh, this relationship between inequality and immobility, was a little bit baked in the cake because the mobility measure looked worse if inequality was rising. Uh, now, in this new paper, they use a mobility measure that really is about rank mobility. It's if you started and you know for, if you start in the bottom fifth, how likely are you to make it to the middle fifth or to the top fifth? Um, and when they did that, uh, this is just a finding that really I think shakes up uh, the entire the entire field of mobility. Essentially, they found that Canada, Sweden, and the U.S. had uh, the same upward mobility rates, um, and, and really the same mobility rates across the three countries, except that uh, there was slightly more downward mobility in Canada. Um, now, if you can see that if, if Sweden and the United States actually had the same mobility, uh, but Sweden is one of the lowest inequality countries, and the United States is one of the highest inequality countries, that just completely upends um, uh, how we should think about this Great Gatsby curve, and uh, and it points to there probably not being much of a relationship between inequality and mobility across countries. Um, the other thing that's happened is is uh, a group of Harvard and Berkeley economists, including Emmanuel Saez, uh, behind the PKD and Saez numbers, uh, found that the share of income going to the top one percent uh, across states or labor markets um, is basically unrelated. 
uh, to mobility uh, in those states or labor markets. So increasingly we're seeing that, that even the idea that there's a correlation is sort of uh, is, is pretty fragile, let alone that there's a causal relationship between the two. So I guess the last question I have then is um, whether or not you think it's persuasive, what do you think the best evidence is or the best uh, arguments are that there's something to be worried about in rising inequality? Mm. That's a great question. Um, you know, I guess my answer would be if inequality continues to, to grow, and I think, I think it potentially could, um, occasionally I get asked, you know, how, how high the share of income going to the top 1% could get. Uh, it was it peaked at 24% in the PKD and SIAS data in 2007. And people start saying, well, you know, if you start to get much higher than that, you know, there is, there's going to be this social unrest. And to that, I sort of say, well, you know, in Manhattan, uh, we, we had uh, data uh, from, from this Harvard-Berkeley team again from this year. In Manhattan, the top 1% of parents uh, actually received 54% of, uh, of all the income that parents received in 2007. Uh, now, admittedly, you know, that was enough to inspire a, a relatively small uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. I would, I would uh, characterize it that way. Um, but, but it's clear that inequality can, can go a lot higher than what we've, what we've seen so far without producing any, any problems. And as we talked about, I don't, think, I don't think social unrest is anything anyone needs to be particularly concerned about. That said, if, if, if we continue to see uh, relatively slow uh, growth in middle-class incomes uh, with rising inequality, then I, I guess if, if, if it turns out that the relationship between economic growth and, and living standards for the typical person, if that ends up... Uh, that relationship ends up severed so that even as we grow as a country, uh, that doesn't make it to, to the middle class and poor, that would be a problem. I I don't think there's, I don't think there's compelling reason to think, uh, that that's going to happen. Um, but if it did, uh, while it wouldn't be destabilizing, uh, it would, uh, it, it would certainly be disappointing. Um, and I think it would in some ways strengthen those who want to, uh, to redistribute pretty heavily, which could then actually make make things even worse um, if it if it affects economic growth uh, in turn. So I, I guess I guess that would be my answer. I'm, I'm not a, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about where living standards are going to go in the future, um, and and they're consistently uh, the improvement in, in incomes is consistently understated uh, by people who are worried about inequality. It's certainly been less than what we saw in the middle of the 20th century, but uh, but I think as long as incomes are rising, uh, uh, that that what happens at the top isn't really going to be that important. Yeah, and I mean, my view is that what you know, the average American isn't looking at uh, these data and income statements; they're looking at how their life is improving and whatever is happening mm. to wages. For the vast majority of us, each new year, there's new amazing. Uh, medical treatments, you know, mm-hmm. gadgets and goods. I mean, the world is transforming, I think, for the better, faster than we've ever seen it. And that, to the people that I talk to, and I talk to more than just the people here in the very uh, rich Southern California area, that's really the experience is um, that, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the challenge is, life is clearly getting better and uh, getting better for most Americans. 
That's right, and 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 some of these uh, some of these new uh, goods and services that we have, you know, are even are, are just about impossible to even value. I mean, what do you? Uh, how, how valuable has it been that we that cell phones are pretty much ubiquitous now? Uh, you know, it's a something we hold in our hand that gives us access to a worldwide database where we can answer pretty much any any question that we can type. Uh, it's got a camera, a phone, um, a gazillion different apps and ways to stay connected to each other. Uh, you know, what would we have paid for that in uh, 1990? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, the, to measure it, you're giving its price, but that doesn't give its value. I mean, the it, yeah. take antibiotics. The price is really small, but the value between having them and not having them is virtually infinite. And yep. th- that's why... You always have to remember there's a lot we can learn from looking at data, but we also have to have a big picture view of what life really is like versus what it was like, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Yep, that's absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. My guest today has been Scott Winship. Scott, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thank you, Don. It was a pleasure. So I don't have too much to add to that discussion I do want to encourage everybody to read Scott's report, which we'll link to in the show notes. I think it's clear that there's simply no credible evidence that inequality is somehow threatening our prosperity. The one thing I will add is that, as Scott explains, these sorts of statistical studies are really, really difficult. The data is often messy and incomplete. There's a lot of judgment involved in how to use it, and so... In terms of what we as consumers have to do, we have to, A, not take headline summaries that we read in the New York Times or the uh, Wall Street Journal as gospel. We need to recognize that there are immense numbers of difficulties in these assessments. And so even if a particular study has a conclusion that we like, we really need to take it with a grain of salt unless we explore further. And then the second thing we have to do is demand honesty from the researchers and intellectuals touting these studies. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 